Hello and welcome to the Anishinaabe History Podcast. I'm Chris Wheat. Today we're going back to the year 1908 to see some of the things that happened in that year. Wilfrid Laurier's Liberals won a fourth consecutive majority government. Canada's population was growing rapidly. Canada's wealth, at least for those of European heritage, was growing too. The master plan was to link east and west by railroad. The prairie grain would be exported to the industrialized world. Those industrialized nations would, in turn, invest in Canadian resource development. All Canada needed was European settlers to occupy the west. Indians had been stripped of their land rights and pushed onto reserves. The United States of America was continuing to grow, too. For instance, the 46th star on the American flag representing Oklahoma was added to the Union. Years of political wrangling had culminated in the proclamation by President Theodore Roosevelt that Oklahoma was now indeed part of the American Union. That's all very interesting, but what happened to the people, the so-called Indians who had already been living there? To more deeply understand these people and events, we have to go back to the 1500s, when the Spanish were invading the New World, and learn about the five civilized tribes. Prior to European arrival, much of what is now Oklahoma was inhabited by the Mississippian culture. What was the Mississippian culture? As you might guess from the name, the Mississippian culture existed along the Mississippi River. To be more accurate, however, the Mississippian culture was not just one culture, it was many cultures that lived similarly. For instance, people of the Mississippian culture built enormous earth mounds. The mounds required many people to build them, and indeed many people lived in that area. As an example, let's look at Cahokia. Cahokia was a small city of farmers near what is now St. Louis, Missouri. Cahokia is basically across the river from St. Louis, Missouri. To be more accurate, St. Louis likely built up across the river from Cahokia, especially after the creation of the Indian Removal Act. Some estimates are that Cahokia housed 15,000 people. They were farmers, agriculturalists, terraformers. The people had lots of food. They were compelled to build the mounds because of their religious beliefs. For many thousands of years before European contact, there were people living in the geographic region now called Oklahoma. Indeed, there were many different cultures on the continent before contact. There are differing estimates about how many native people lived on Turtle Island before Christopher Columbus showed up. Low estimates are around 10 million. High estimates run as high as over 100 million human inhabitants across the Americas at the time of first European contact. Disease and warfare has killed millions of humans across Turtle Island since the beginning of European colonization. What do I mean by colonization? We can go to the voyages of Christopher Columbus in the 1490s for some indication of the intent of European explorers, missionaries, venture capitalists, and nation builders. Europeans made abundant records of their exploits. 
Don't mistake this for meaning there was no writing or methods of data collection in the New World. In fact, the opposite is true. In the New World, at the time of European contact, there was writing, music, architecture, and agriculture in the so-called New World. The myth of the uncivilized savage is just that, a myth. It's a stereotype created and perpetuated by colonists' minds, minds that want to take resources from other people and then justify the theft. The justification is twofold. One, Indians were savages without government and therefore had to be civilized. And two, the land was supposedly unused and therefore justified the expropriation of land from natives to European settlers. Let me be clear. Natives were not savages and the land was not unused. Therefore, Canada and America are built upon stolen land. Ah, yeah. In 1908, a woman named Agnes Deans Cameron traveled north to the Arctic Circle and lived to tell the tale. Not only that, but she wrote a book about the journey and achieved some fame. The book has been digitized and is available on archive.org. Cameron had some interesting impressions about the people whom she called Eskimos. Quote, Through all these years, no one has visited the Eskimo from the outside with the purpose of doing him good, but rather with the idea of exploiting him. Yet from the days of Sir John Franklin and Sir Alexander Mackenzie to the recent voyage of Amundsen, the spontaneous tribute of every man who has met them, talked with them, and received their hospitality is the same. The Eskimo is generous, and his word is worth its full face value. What we have done for the Eskimo is a minus quantity. What he has done for us is to point a splendid moral of integrity, manliness, and intrepid courage. End quote. Cameron did not describe the northern people merely as savages, noble or otherwise. She even contrasted Eskimos with southern neighbors, whom she called Indians. She continued her description of cultures as follows, quote, Indians beg and boast. The Eskimo does neither. With no formulated religion or set creed, he has a code of ethics which forbids him to turn the necessity of another to his own advantage. Amundsen's farewell to his Eskimo friends sets the thoughtful of us thinking, Goodbye, my dear, dear friends. My best wish for you is that civilization may never reach you. The trite saying is that the Luchot Indians forced the Eskimo north, keeping them with patient faces turned toward the pole. But the Eskimo has a better country than the Luchot has, for it is less rigorous and it produces more foodstuffs. The Luchot at Fort McPherson knows what it is to experience 60 below Fahrenheit, while at the coast it doesn't drop below 55. The Eskimo has two fields in which to hunt food, the land and the sea, with fish the great staple, and both fresh and saltwater fish are his, that in the mouth of the great rivers being better than what the Luchot gets higher up. End quote. Cameron describes the Inuit, whom she calls Eskimo, not as victims of displacement, but as hunters in abundant fields. Violence, in Cameron's writing, is attributed to outsiders invading the Arctic. 
One group is the Lushou people, who are the Lushou Indians that Cameron mentions. According to the Catholic Encyclopedia, written in 1910, and also available online for free, the Lushou Indians were, quote, the would-be Kuchin of some ethnologists, and the Tukud of the Protestant missionaries. Richardson called them quarrelers. They call themselves generally Diné, men, and form an aggregate of closely related tribes, a sort of ethnographic confederation, the most northwestern of all the Dene divisions. Their habitat extends from Anderson River in the east to the western extremity of Alaska. East of the Rocky Mountains, their southern frontier is today about 67 degrees north latitude, and west of that range their territory reaches somewhat more to the south. Practically the whole interior of Alaska is claimed by them. In the north they have for neighbors the Eskimos. They are, or were originally, divided into 14 tribes, vis-a-vis the Kayukotene, or people of the Willow River, conterminous with the Eskimos of Norton Sound, an important subdivision of more or less mixed blood, more commonly known by its Eskimo name, Ingalet. The Koyukuk Otene, or Koyukons, farther up the great Alaskan stream and along the Koyukuk River, the Unakotene, still higher up on the left bank of the Yukon, as far as the Tanana River, the Tanana, along the river called after them, the Kutka Kutkin, at the confluence of the Porcupine, the Jean Dulage, or Natki Kutkin, from the Porcupine to the Romanov Mountains, the Vowen Kutkin, or People of the Lake, the Tsake Kutkin, or Cross-Eyed Ones, being the particular tribe between the headwaters of the Porcupine and Fort McPherson, which give rise to the French name of Luchot, now applied to all those related Arctic Aborigines. The Hankutkin, or river people, above the Kotlo River, on both banks of the Yukon. The Utsonekutkin, or crow people, from the sources of the Porcupine and the Peel, to those of the Lierd. The Tehaninkutkin, from the upper branches of the Yukon, almost to the Pacific coast. The Thetlet Kutkin on Peel River, the Nakatko Onjikutkin or people of the Mackenzie, and the Kwitka Kutkin who inhabit the dreary steppes bordering on the Arctic Ocean, barring a strip of land along the coast between the Mackenzie and the Anderson Rivers. The dissonance Kutkin in all these tribal names means inhabitants of, as well as Tene in other Dene denominations, and not men, as American ethnologists have freely stated. End quote. The article continues, but it's long, so I'm going to break it down into understandable chunks. The linguistic and geographic descriptions are interesting. Are there connections to distant and ancient cultures that we might find surprising? I think so. The Catholic Encyclopedia article continues as follows, quote, The total population of the Luchot tribes is today about 5,500 souls. They are, as a rule, superior physically and mentally to the majority of the northern Denes. Tall and of a rather pleasing appearance, 
they are more manly than their southern neighbors. Owing to the large extent of their habitat, their manners and customs cannot be represented as uniform. East and west of the Rocky Mountains, they were originally remarkable for their fine beaded and befringed leather costume, the most conspicuous part of which was a coat with peaked appendage in front and behind. Their footgear was made of one piece with the leggings, the counterpart among most American Aborigines of the white man's trousers. During the winter they lived in semi-spherical skin lodges, not unlike those of the Tuskies of the eastern Asiatic coast, and in summer they replaced these by shelters usually made of coniferous bows, generally erected in pairs of face-to-face -face dwellings so that a single fire on the outside served for both. Their tribal organization varies according to their environment. While east of the Rocky Mountains they have preserved the original patriarchy of the Denes in all its primitive simplicity, some of the western tribes have adopted a sort of matriarchy with chiefs, clans, totems, and other consequent institutions. Their religion originally consisted in the shamanism common to all the northern Denes, and their traditions clearly point to the west, that is, Asia, as the region whence they migrated. Their wars were, as usual, series of ambuscades and massacres, of which the Eskimos were often the victims. Several of these are on record, as for instance the treacherous slaying of five or six Eskimos on the lower Mackenzie, in the spring of 1850, and in October of the same year, the murder by the Koyukons of Lieutenant Barnard with his body servant, and then the destruction by fire and arrows of an almost entire village of the Nulado Indians on the Yukon. Early the following spring, the same party likewise encompassed the death of the Russian commander with one of his men, whereby we see that the assertion of Father Petito that the Luchot never imbued their hands in the blood of Europeans is unreliable. End quote. What I find interesting in these couple of paragraphs is how it seamlessly flows from a description of clothing and shelters into a slightly veiled warning about the potential for violence against Europeans by Indians. Yes, individual humans on Turtle Island killed each other. But does that justify the prolonged intergenerational effort of non-indigenous religions and governments stealing land and resources and selling them to foreign companies while letting the indigenous people suffer for it? I think not. Anyways, the entry in the Catholic Encyclopedia reveals more information. Quote, The Luchot are of all the northern Dene tribes that which has been the least influenced by Catholicism. The Catholic missionaries had secured a firm footing among their neighboring congeners when the Protestant preachers reached the Mackenzie and directed their steps toward the Luchot, especially those whose habitat lay west of the Rocky Mountains, who had not as yet been visited. There being no priests to oppose them, they practically had the field to themselves. East of that range, the Oblate Fathers Seguin and Petito hailing from the missions of Good Hope and Fort McPherson, long devoted themselves to the salvation of the Luchot, not without success. But the fanaticism of those who had embraced Protestantism 
eventually resulted in the Catholic Luchot having to leave Fort McPherson, where the priest's house was burnt down by their Protestant compatriots. For the environs of the Arctic Red River, where a Catholic mission was built for Luchot and Eskimos. An Episcopalian clergyman, Reverend W. W. Kirkby, had already crossed the Rockies to proselytize among the Western Luchot. In 1862 and 1870 respectively, Fathers Seguin and Petito followed him thither, going as far as Fort Yukon, but without any appreciable results owing to the calumnies disseminated by the minister who had preceded them in every village. Two years later, Bishop Clut, OMI, accompanied by Father Lacour, walked in their footsteps and reached the Pacific, meeting along the Yukon with some slight success. Father Lacour even remained on that stream until 1874, when he learned that Alaska had been entrusted to the Bishop of Vancouver Island. The latter advanced in 1877 as far as Nulato from the coast, but in November 1886 he was murdered in the course of another apostolic tour in the valley of the Yukon. I should add here that he was not murdered by Eskimos or Lucho Indians. He was murdered by a European. But I continue the quotes. Nevertheless, the efforts of the two bishops had not been in vain. They paved the way for establishment by the Jesuits of a mission in 1887 among the westernmost Luchot. The following year, a little band of sisters of St. Anne arrived there, who immediately opened a school for the Luchot and Eskimo girls, while lay brothers of the Society of Jesus were doing the same on behalf of the boys of both nations. Most of the Eastern Luchot are now excellent Catholics. End quote. That's a lot of information to unpack from the Catholic Encyclopedia, and some of it contrasts with Cameron's descriptions of the people of the Arctic. It should be noted, perhaps, that propaganda is a Catholic invention. One thing to pay attention to is the religious bias towards Catholicism which is not surprising seeing as it's from a Catholic encyclopedia written in 1910. It is Christian proselytizing in its various forms to non-European people. Missionaries help bring civilization to indigenous people. The Christian bias plus the cultural pecking order implied by religious comparison paints a picture of Euro-Canadian attitudes towards indigenous peoples. The encyclopedia description implies European cultural superiority over the people described therein. A third thing to notice is the reference to the Inuit Eskimo people arriving in their contemporary location via northeastern Asia. Furthermore, the encyclopedia refers to conflict between the Lucho Indians and Eskimos, as well as between the Lucho and Europeans. What I want to highlight are the characteristics of the people whom are referred to as Eskimos in these old documents. In the Catholic Encyclopedia, they are referred to as victims of attacks by a group of Lucho people. This is because, generally, the indigenous inhabitants of this region were not warlike. They weren't cowards, they were peaceful, and they were adapted to the Arctic environment. Another instance of attack upon the Inuit was back in 1771. That attack had occurred at the hands of a Chippewyan man named Matanabe, 
who was a guide for Samuel Hearn, an English explorer. It should be noted that although the attack involved Inuit people, the location of the attack was hundreds of kilometers from the area discussed in the Catholic Encyclopedia and the area discussed in the book by Cameron. So yes, there was violence, but it can be argued that violence was not widespread amongst the Inuit. In fact, there's evidence to the contrary. For example, the ambuscades and massacres, as they are described in the Catholic Encyclopedia, are all the Inuit knew of war. There were no standing armies. There were no legions. They had igloos, not castles, because they dealt with extreme weather instead of catapults and trebuchets. European contact changed everything. When did the first European get to this part of the Arctic? Although there was some European contact by explorers on the eastern coastal areas in the 1700s, it was in the mid-1850s that white culture started to impact the Arctic peoples. Even in 1908, Cameron could see the impact already happening. She observed, quote, Through the years, there was bad blood and mutual distrust between Eskimo and Luchot. The last pitched battle occurred in the 1860s, when of the contestants only two Luchot escaped and not one Eskimo was killed. The Hudson's Bay Company officer at the close of the fight called together the relatives of the slain Luchot, upon whom rested the duty of revenge, and out of the company's stores paid in trade goods the blood price of the slain. Since then both peoples have traded at Forts McPherson and Arctic Red River, maintaining a sort of armed peace, but with no deeds of violence. The Luchot Indian, his wives, his babies, and his slab-sided dogs suffer from starvation almost every winter. In the whole history of the Eskimo, there is not an authenticated story of one of this people having starved to death. Once more we protest against misapplied sympathy. However it may have been in the past, the Eskimo stays on the coast today because it is to him God's country, and not because any hostile Luchot sends him there. For the past 20 years, the men on the American ships have employed the Eskimo to aid them in the whaling industry, picking up different bands all the way from Bering Sea eastward as they sail in from the Pacific, and depositing each group at their individual beaches as the ships take out their rich spoils of baleen and oil at the close of the season. The Eskimo has proven a valued aid to this industry. How has the intrusion of the whites into his ancestral sea domain affected the Eskimo? Within two decades, the European population of this Mackenzie River Delta region has been cut down from 2,000 to probably one-fourth of that number. The causes? White men's diseases. Scarlet fever, consumption, measles, Syphilis must account for most of the startling decrease. Scarlatina has killed many, consumption some, though consumption is not nearly so fatal with the Eskimo as with the Indian. Measles perhaps more than all. Measles among the Eskimo is more fatal than the bubonic plague among Europeans. What other changes is the yearly presence of American whalers among them making in Eskimo evolution? Who shall say? It is so easy to be dogmatic, so hard to be just. 
This intrusion of the whites has changed the whole horizon here. We can scarcely call it the coming of civilization, but call it rather the coming of commerce. End quote. That was in 1908 that Cameron wrote that. There have certainly been many changes to that area and to the Inuit way of life in the Arctic over the last 100 years or so. For instance, I wonder if Cameron or the Inuit of a hundred years ago could have predicted the melting of the polar ice caps due to anthropogenic climate change. Could she have predicted two future world wars and the invention of computers? Did she know about Cahokia? That's all for today's episode. Stay tuned for more episodes in the future. I'm Chris Waite. And this has been the Anishinaabe History Podcast.